all. Um, thank you all for coming I'm, and um, welcome uh, to all of you to uh, the event uh, on the Spanish financial crisis and the lessons for the European Banking Union. Uh, I'm going uh, to introduce the speakers to you in a moment and um, then we will immediately start with a presentation of their report. In case you're interested, you can find it then outside, uh, near to the entrance, on the right. There is uh, the public, they, they brought uh, 15 copies, so you can take it and have a look at it. And um, let me present you the speakers now. Um, on my left, I have Miguel Otero Iglesias. He is a senior analyst at Elcano Royal Institute and uh, a research associate at the EU Asia Institute at ESCA School of Management in France. He obtained his PhD in international political economy at the Oxford uh, Brookes University and his research interests are emerging markets, international political economy and finance. On my right hand side I have uh, Federico Steinberg. He is also senior uh, analyst at uh, Elcano Royal Institute and uh, he is also a lecturer of political economy at the Madrid's Universidad Autónoma. He holds a PhD in economics from the same university and his uh, research interests are international trade, finance, development and European economic and financial matters. Stefano Neri uh, over there is uh, head of uh, monetary analysis division in the research uh, department of the Banca d'Italia. He earned his PhD in economics at the University Pompeo Fabra and his research has focused mainly on monetary policy and its transmission mechanism, macroeconomic modeling and financial frictions. Um, I'm Pia Hüttel, I'm an affiliate fellow here at Bruegel and I will chair this event. Thanks a lot for, to the speakers um, to, um, to come and present their paper and um, please. Going to start. Uh... Yeah. Well, thank you very much. First of all, thanks to to Bruegel for for hosting us. And actually, uh, this is really uh, special for us in part because the origin of this report came from a conversation with Bruegel a couple of years ago, in which basically uh, uh, the idea was that there was no uh, clear, concise uh, paper to explain what uh, was going on, what went on with the Spanish financial crisis and the resolution uh, in English for a wide audience uh, in a political economy perspective, not so much academic. Um, and this is really the result. So uh, there are, there's another author besides Miguel and me, Sebastian Rollo, uh, uh, just to acknowledge and uh, tell, I mean, give him, uh, thanks to him for, 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 for being part of, of the team. And what we are going to do is basically uh, talk 20 minutes. I'm going to be doing a, a brief outline of, this, uh, of the first part and on the analysis of the, of the report. And then Miguel will focus on what we think is really uh, food for, for discussion, which is what are the implications of the European, oh, sorry, of the, of the Spanish financial crisis for the European Banking Union. Because we see there are some parallels that are interesting to to take into account. So first of all, just some, some basic facts. Uh, in a way, uh, Spain, uh, even though in the first 
part of the crisis, let's say 2007 to 2009, was perceived as a country with a very solid banking system. Actually, this was uh, important as a, as a strategy for also uh, you know, selling us in the G20, in this moment uh, in which Spain became a part of the G20, uh, from not being a permanent member to becoming a permanent invitee, which I think is, is it, it makes sense, actually. Uh, but basically, this, this first period of, of the crisis uh, in the US, in, even in Germany and other places where, where there was quick resolution of some institutions and, and bailouts. Uh, in Spain, the, the, the crisis comes later. And this, in fact, we argue, uh, makes it a bit more costly, particularly because when uh, the, the actual bailout takes uh, place uh, from, from the ESM, uh, uh, which is uh, later in the process, uh, it ends up costing more and putting Spain uh, in the core of, the, of being you know, the problem for the Eurozone at a very particular point. Uh, whereas if, if the, the solution had been taken earlier, probably you know, Spain would have you know, bailed out some institutions together with the US and with Germany and with others. Uh, so, so there was be less of an attention. In the end, uh, we, we ended up spending around 150 billion in recapitalizing the financial system, of which around 42 billion came from, from European money, uh, from, from the rescue. Um, and then uh, the key element, uh, we would argue, is that uh, we had a, a dual banking system in which you know, we had some banks, uh, some of them multinationals, uh, Santander, BBBA, uh, even La Caixa, which comes from the transformation of one of the more solid cajas into a bank. And then we have a, a, a second element in the banking system, which was around 50%, which was uh, the, the cajas, the savings banks, which were basically where most of the problems uh, existed because, as, as we explained, because of a dual regulatory system and a lot of uh, conflicts uh, between different levels of political authority. And this is something to bear in mind. Uh, in the end, and just to conclude this idea of the facts, uh, there was a bailout uh, program in Spain uh, that lasted 18 months uh, with uh, 32 specific measures from the Memorandum of Understanding that it, you know, could be regarded, I think, uh, is regarded as one of the successes of uh, uh, very well completed and, and instituted uh, bailout that actually transforms the financial system, consolidates a lot of groups. We went from more than 40 institutions to around seven. And this raises issues also of, you know, if this needs to happen also in Europe at some point, uh, more consolidation and the look for, you know, uh, wider European banks, um, but also, uh, credit is back, and if anything, at this point, we could argue that you know the Spanish recovery is relatively strong, and the problem is, is not really on the on the supply of credit; it's maybe on the demand of you know uh, good business projects in this environment of low demand, probably. Um, if we want to look at what are the causes of the crisis more generally, uh, well, no, a well-known story of a big real estate bubble uh, in Spain. Uh, really something quite different, for example, from, from the Italian case that maybe we'll discuss. Uh, you know, the element of the unexpected double-deep recession is also important to take into account. So here the idea is that the consolidation strategy pursued by the, by the governments, first of the Zapatero government and then of the Rajoy government, was trying to, you know, as other times in, in previous crises in Spain, uh, you know, little by little let, you know, healthy banks uh, merge with not-so-healthy banks 
and little by little with some state aid uh, and looking you know, for a recovery that this could work out. Uh, the issue here is that probably uh, around 2010, uh, the Greek crisis starts, we have the contagion effect, and we have a double rib recession precisely when you know, the expectation in Spain was that you know, after a very bad 2009, the economy was going to recover. And this actually uh, makes it problematic, uh, this strategy of uh, cold fusions, and there are some technical discussions, I'm not going to get into them, in, in the report of how to, to merge the institutions that ended up you know, merging you know, bad institutions in terms of uh, solvency with uh, institutions that looked a bit better but also had big holes. And here there's an ongoing debate as to you know, how far uh, this was not detected by the, by the Bank of Spain, which is another actor uh, key in this process uh, in the run-up to the crisis. And then and, you know, also there are issues that have to do with the, with the creation of the euro. I mean, the big dependence on, on wholesale, uh, uh, you know, financing from, from the Spanish cajas. Uh, some of the bad lending practices that I, that I referred to that have, have to do mostly with uh, regional banks and small cajas and with the real estate sector. And what we do, uh, in two minutes I just uh, pointed out, is to, to, to do a political economy analysis in which we identify uh, four or five key actors, the government, the Bank of Spain, the financial sector, distinguishing between cajas and, and the banks, and, and European institutions in general, to try to provide uh, a model uh, to explain why there was a delay on the, on the resolution. Uh, using a model by Alberto Alessina that has been used on, on stabilizations in emerging economies, uh, but basically using the same framework, why the combination of, of uh, the interests and preferences of most of these actors, together with the division in the regulation in different levels of, uh, of government, and the incentives, uh, both of the governments, of the Bank of Spain in some moments, and uh, you know, in the public opinion in general, of, of you know, continue uh, you know being quite happy with the story, uh, you know, be willing to, to to listen to a nice story in which there's not going to be public money used, uh, ended up being a bit perverse and costing uh, much more than what the pilot was originally. I mean, what, what the cost would have been had it been done earlier. So I'll, I'll leave it here and, and let Miguel get into most of the the elements of for the banking union that maybe we'll discuss in more detail. Good afternoon to everyone. Um, thanks, thanks for, for hosting. Thanks for Bruegel as well for, for inviting us to, to present here our, our, our paper. Um, yeah, let me just in the 12 minutes that I have to, to um, work through what we consider six key lessons uh, from the Spanish banking crisis. Um, the first one is this time was no different. Uh, and this, you know, draws on, of course, the work of Reinhard and Rogoff and others. But the, the idea here is that essentially, Kindlerberger and Minsky were right, and the efficient market hypothesis wasn't. Uh, and so, um, I think for for a long while uh, in the Basel II arrangement, the idea was uh, markets know better; they should operate, and uh, regulators should uh, have a hands-off approach. Uh, less affair dominated, and we entered into uh, a real estate bubble where, where even the regulators, uh, like the Bank of Spain, were, had very much difficulties in telling people, look, we might have a bubble here, and this might be dangerous. Uh, the Bank of Spain in 2003, they had a paper saying uh, house prices in Spain were 20% overvalued. 
already then. Uh, but essentially, this was a paper that remained a paper by the researchers of the Bank of Spain. Um, and of course, the Bank of Spain didn't really have the means uh, to stop this bubble. <coughs> Although it, uh, it took some actions to, uh, to uh, kind of buffer it, to, to, to at least prepare the banking sector for, for the tr troubles that could uh, come uh, uh, um, afterwards. And you know, it, it introduced what are called counter-cyclical dynamic provisions that essentially uh, now it's seen that you know, a forerunner of uh, macroprudential regulation. Um, now, you know, and, and, and now we can say, well, perhaps this was not enough, okay? Perhaps the Bank of Spain could have uh, uh, risen uh, capital requirement, requirements. It could have stopped the flow of credit. It could have done much more. It could have been, you know, uh, 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 imposing even higher provisions. But it didn't, it didn't end, I mean, from, from the research that we've done and the interviews that we conducted with the people from the Bank of Spain, they were telling us, look, this was a Basel II arrangement. Even the European Commission was telling at the time, what are you doing with these provisions? This is not logical. Let the market operate. Uh, the, the, the zeitgeist of the moment was uh, you should have in-house modeling in the banks that should be sufficient and should tell you what you need to do. So even there, I mean, the, 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 the peer pressure was lower the provisions. Get rid of this counter-cyclical uh, arrangements and let the banks operate in a free market uh, 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 mode. And so the first, I think, lesson is this time was no different. And you know, uh, real estate bubbles uh, repeat uh, uh, in history. Um, and perhaps you know, the recommendation would be for regulators to be skeptic of the zeitgeist and of uh, asset asset bubbles, asset price bubbles. The second uh, uh, lesson uh, is that, in many ways, it was different. It was a different crisis. Um, it was a different crisis because, essentially, um, the Bank of Spain um, thought, we can fix this crisis like we did in the previous crisis, which is, let the market consolidate. Let the big fish eat the small fish, and we can do this through the market. The problem here is that we didn't deal anymore with banks. These were cajas, these were saving banks. So it was a different beast that traditionally was much more conservative, but that because of regulation had become much bigger. And therefore, uh, now we had a more consolidated sector already in Spain. So there was no appetite by many banks to, to buy those small fish. And, and, and that was uh, uh, something new and that uh, led to problems. Then, of course, there was the interference of local politicians. Uh, that, you know, all these cajas have very strong connections uh, at the local level, at the regional level, and a lot of these politicians didn't want those cajas to be bought or to be resolved as it should have been done. There was uh, excessive over-dependence on uh, credit uh, wholesale markets, very new for Sp Spanish standards, a lot of net uh, external debt, as we know, in Spain. Of course, Spain had no central bank, so we had to rely on the ECB for liquidity, which came, but of course, it's a very different scenario to have a central bank from not having a central bank, and we can discuss whether Spain would have uh, performed better with a central bank. That's something 
that uh, uh, we don't enter to because I think there are some positive aspects of being in a monetary union and some negative aspects of being in, in, in a monetary union. And then the last thing that was new, of course, is that unless in the 90s, um, uh, or unlike in the 90s, you had free flow of capitals, uh, which was as well a, a new arrangement that we have to deal in a, in a circumstance where you can have southern stops that, uh, of course, are buffered by target two, but uh, mm -hmm. essentially happen, and, and this is problematic. Um, here, recommendation, expand your anti-crisis and crisis management toolkit. Third, a lesson, be prepared for the worst. Essentially, we had to deal with not only one big black swan, which was the global financial crisis, a crisis not seen in the last eight years, since the 1929 uh, crash and recession. And it, we not only had only uh, one uh, big swan, we had a second black swan, which was the Greek crisis. That, as Federico said, many in Spain in 2008, 2009, didn't think that it would have come. So they thought, okay, we just wait, we consolidate the market, and you know, Spain will come out of recession and we will have a normal V-shaped recession, but no one thought that we would have a W uh, recession because of the black swan of Greece. And this led us, of course, to the third black swan, which was this double dip recession, which uh, uh, no one foresaw. Um, here, um, uh, bold action would have to be needed, um, and this is, of course, very difficult because uh, of many political resistance, as I said, and as well of the political economy, of vested interest, and of course um, of having the capacity, which is not so easy to resolve 12 cajas at the same time. Do you have the manpower, the expertise, the knowledge to go into the cajas, to know whether they are solvent or not, to resolve them in a very short amount of time? Not easy to do. Recommendation here, um, have the capacity to challenge vested interests, and have stress tests that think out of the box. That, of course, they cannot foresee and predict black swans, but you need to really think what crazy things can happen that can shake the boat. Fourth uh, lesson, regionally fragmented oversight is problematic. Uh, and this is a lesson, of course, for the European Banking Union, because, as you know, a lot of banks in the banking union are not directly or supervised by the uh, uh, single uh, supervisor mechanism. Uh, a lot of the smaller banks are not supervised directly by the single supervisory mechanism. A lot of them have very strong regional attachments. So parochialism is uh, uh, strong, and I refer here to not only the Spanish case, but we see it as well in the Italian case. We see it what happens in Germany with the Landesbanken and the Sparkassen. Uh, and so this, of course, you know, you can debate. Do we need more centralization? I mean, we had this discussion as well with Nicolas Veron. Nicolas Veron was saying, we are now having a centralized system that is too centralized in many ways, uh, and more centralized than American. Uh, from a Spanish perspective, perhaps you need a, cer a certain level of centralization to actually deal with these problems, because even smaller banks can get you into trouble, because they can be systemic. Um, so is centralization necessary? We think yes, in particular aspects, yes. Fifth, um, too big to fail is getting worse. Uh, through this consolidation that we are seeing in Spain, we see that the, you know, the bigger banks have become even bigger, and this uh, 
uh, creates more influence. It might as well mean that they have an advantage in the markets. They might left, uh, leave out um, more marginal groups, marginalized groups. What about the unemployed? What about the migrants? What about the rural areas? That was always uh, you know, a, a, a market for the sparkassen, or for the, for in this case in Spain, the savings banks in Spain, the, the cajas. Um, so here, you know, and then I think in many cases people think about the influence of the financial institutions and the big banks in, in regards to actions and regulatory capture and, and, and what they can impose. But we, we, we draw as well on, on some of the IP literature which says the power of banks is precisely in action, that they can wait and not step in and only when things are getting very bad then it's cheaper to buy these this other institutions, or even when the taxpayer comes and you know, sweetens the deal, that's when they step in. So the, the, the power of inaction, I think it's very interesting. A, a recommendation here, have clear resolution plans for all these big banks. What, what would a, a, resol, a resolution of Deutsche Bank, Santander, Unicred look like? Uh, how would we deal with that? And then, of course, this you know, goes as well to notions of nationality, whether you know, we can have all these banks be bought by banks from another country. You know, and so all the, 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 the elements that we saw in the Spanish crisis of regional fragmentation, parochialism, etc., could come to the fore. Finally, and Pia, sorry for going a bit too long, um, the, sixth is, uh, the sixth lesson is, the last one is, um, we need a fiscal backstop. Um, history tells us that when you have a systemic financial crisis, it is always the sovereign, it's always a taxpayer that uh, stabilizes the system. Uh, we are now in an era where a lot of uh, Brussels-based and national-based policymakers believe that the bail-in framework is uh, sufficient. Uh, but, uh, you know, history tells us that if you don't have a fiscal backstop sufficiently uh, big to deal with a systemic crisis with a lot of uncertainty by economic actors, you might get into trouble. And, of course, here the recommendation would be to create this uh, fiscal backstop and then, of course, we open a new Pandora box, which is can you have a banking union without a fiscal union and can you have a fiscal union without a political union? And as we are, we are just coming from the, from the Brussels Economic Forum, and there was a panel on the future of the euro, and I think this is a debate that we need to solve. For me, it's striking to see that in, in our profession, economists, political economists, uh, it seems that there's no clear consensus on the necessity to create a fiscal union. A lot of my colleagues still think, look, with the bail-in, it's, you know, it's, it's sufficient, and we can arrange it. There's even people that say you can create even a, a risk-free asset, call it euro bonds, without having a fiscal union, without having a political union. But you know, it's strange that in the profession there's no consensus on this. One thing is the political debate, whether people want it, whether it's politically possible, etc. But I think from an economic point of view, from an economic theory point of view, from a historical point of view, history tells us that monetary unions without fiscal unions, banking unions without fiscal unions, tend to be unstable. And I leave it there. Of course. 
Thanks a lot to the two speakers for their uh, really interesting uh, summary of uh, their uh, paper, and uh, thanks a lot for the for the last thoughts. I think um, indeed uh, that Balin might not be uh, the best toolkit when it comes to systemic crisis, and um, you did a great job in highlighting this also in your paper. Um, before um, passing to the discussant, I would also like to add. Um, already a comment, and it's on the dynamic provisioning that you pointed out as uh, Spain being, uh, so to say, the, the first one to, to try it out, and, and how you would um, see this instrument looking ahead in, in Banking Union, because you were saying it's a lot on, on the implementation, and, and uh, the idea at the time was to let the markets um, uh, move freely, but what do you think looking ahead? Has the zeitgeist changed, so to speak? Um, please, Stefano Neri. Okay, so it's my pleasure to be here to discuss this paper. I think you will need a whole day to go through all the, the implications of their work, uh, but of course in the interest of time you have to pick uh, a few things that you want to discuss. But let me make a, a, a few introductory remarks. I think I had the chance to visit Spain several times uh, in the build-up of the housing bubble, and, and I remember a, a sense of the widespread euphoria, which was also, you know, politically, in some sense, uh, pushed. If you remember, as now used to say, España va bien, which means Spain, Spain is doing good. So that's something that I recall very clearly at some stage. Uh, regarding the housing bubble, let me give you some numbers, so just to, to, to introduce. At the peak of the, of the cycle, uh, mortgages were 65% of GDP, lending to developers and construction 45%. So overall, 180% 100, of lending over GDP, which is, you know, by historical standard, is, is, is really large, okay? There were more new dwellings built in Spain at some point than in the sum of Italy, France, and Germany. Uh, so supply was also in a bubbly mood, I would say, okay? When all this started, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a long story, so there's no need to go through that, but certainly it has some roots in the liberalization of, of the banking sector, and in particular the Cajas, which at some point became like commercial banks, but not 100% like commercial banks. So when there was the need at some point to inject capital in these Cajas, it's was hardly feasible. You know, it was by law, was, they were regulated and framed in a different way from commercial banks. So there were really some constraints. And they had to be solved by politicians, you know, changing the rules, the framework, and so on. That was the thing was a, you know, a factor that prevented some you know, quick action on the side of policymakers. Another point that maybe prevented some delay in action was the fact that it wasn't clear to most of the people that that was a bubble. I mean, in macroeconomics, it's usually said that it's very hard to detect a bubble. Okay, so with the benefits of insight, it's pretty straightforward to say, of course, there was a bubble. Everyone was crazy about borrowing and consuming and buying a house. But in real time, at that time, maybe it was not sure. There was a kind of baby boom that was building, you know, uh, affecting demand for housing. There were migration from outside. Uh, a lot of people were buying houses in the coastal provinces. At some point, half of the new houses bought were in the coastal provinces. So, you know, to factor in how much structural uh, is 
driving house price and how much is due to low interest rates, how much is doing all the factors, irrational behavior, it's not easy. It's not easy. And why I touch on this? Because as I was said before, there were tools in place that could have prevented this buildup of you know, crazy credit bubble. Maybe there weren't enough. The dynamic provisioning uh, was set up by the Bank of Spain in 2000, and it was considered to be, you know, you know, a kind of, you know, pre uh, macroprudential policy. There was some research has also proved that it has been effective, but maybe I agree it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough basically because that was acting on, you know, the banks on capital buffers, so to say. But banks were giving a lot of credit. Uh, with high LTV ratios, because, because also appraisal prices were inflated by appraisal firms. So meaning that you know, the price of housing was overvalued and the guy could get a mortgage staying at LTV 80% without consuming much capital, so extra requirement of capital, and that pushed the bubble. And there's a research that has been published on this, on average on a sample of mortgages they were originated. 30% was the average over appraisal of the price. So that allowed to keep 80% LTV ratio, no extra capital, and fool in the bubble. And some of the banks that had trouble after were among those who were doing this type of. And there was probably no information that could be used to get you know, hands on this type of behavior. But it was a kind of Misincentives for these firms, appraisal firms, those who were assessing the price of a housing, in most of the cases were really related to the banks. So there was, you know, clearly all the incentives were in one direction. And these incentives to me looked very strong at that time because also the economy was doing very well. When Germany in 2003 was growing less than 1%, Spain was growing at 3%. You know, it's hard to sustain that everything is manageable when you grow at 3%. So again, the question is, there was a bubble or there was a bubble? We don't know. Ex post, we could say yes. Were there the tools to, to manage this? Probably not that effective. They were, but they weren't that effective. Okay, That's the first lesson. So there's certainly an implication of your work in terms of macroprudential policy, as, as the, was said before. So there must be some, a larger role for macroprudential policy looking ahead to prevent the buildup of bubbles. I think that's his first order. You should prevent rather than intervene after. It's kind of leaning against. Of course, you have to set up all the institutional framework that allow to manage the bust. And I agree with the speakers that some fiscal capacity needs to be in place because you can manage with a new framework for the resolution, a bunch of small banks with idiosyncratic troubles. When it turns to a systemic crisis, and maybe Spain was exactly a systemic crisis with, I don't know, how many banks requiring public intervention, then it's, it's not clear. It's not clear that you can manage uh, with existing rules. So and that goes into the direction of completing the monetary union in some sense, so in building a larger fiscal capacity. And I personally agree with, uh, with the view that uh, uh, the monetary union should be completed and the direction is pretty clear, so some kind of fiscal common capacity. I don't want to push it to political union, which I think is pretty difficult at this stage, but ideally that would be the end point. Remember what Paleoscopia used to say, the euro was the beginning, wasn't the end point. 
It was the beginning of, of the construction of a big uh, architecture that would have led to a really complete monetary economic union. So we should really be careful in interpreting this as the end point. So I think it's simply progressing by trial and errors. We understand that we need to adjust the framework for you know, the banking union, we need to include a common resolution, we, you know, it's slowly progressing. And I think this requires time because you, you have to build the consensus, political consensus. The final point is uh, regarding supervision. So the IMF, when went to Spain for the FSAP in 2006, uh, was worried about the fact that the division of regulatory and supervisory responsibilities between the central government and the regional government was dangerous, right? So the question I have is, who could have adjusted the framework at that time to go in the direction of harmonizing and making the responsibilities uh, clearer? I think that was a political choice, right? So it would have been the government who would have said, agreeing with the regional uh, provinces and region to you know, come to a new framework that would have a better sharing of responsibilities. But that's, that's again, it's politics, so it can be very complex. It takes a lot of time because you have to you know, reach a consensus and in the end, the regional government need to give up some of the power and control they have over the CACAS, which was one, as the other speaker said, one of the reasons for the failure of the whole CACAS system. They were too politicized. And uh, so the question is, you know, that takes time because you have to, you know, build the consensus for redesigning the whole system. But, you know, to wrap up, I think there are so many lessons from their, their work that I, uh, that I support. And I think we are moving in the right direction. We, we, we designed the single uh, supervisory mechanism that supervised the largest institutions in the Euro area but that's also a say over the smaller ones, of course, the ECB. We have assigned a greater role to macroprudential policy, which is something you don't really expand in the report, but I think it's good to have in mind. So we need to expand a set of tools for dealing with the buildup, also on top of dealing with the bust, because crisis would happen again in the future. The history is full of crisis, so it may be that it happens again. But you need to be preemptive. And all the tools must be in place to either prevent the crisis or if you really can't make it for any reason to, to minimize the, the, the cost for the economy, the taxpayers and the savers, which remember they are the same people. Now the taxpayer is different from the savers. We're all taxpayers and savers here, I guess. Uh, and the other point is that what built, what brought us to the crisis was a, 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 a sequence of failure at different levels in terms of incentives, lack of regulation, coordination. Uh, this reminds, reminds me quite a lot of the US crisis. It was not clear who was regulating and supervising certain institutions who were, you know, fueling the bubble by securitizing mortgages uh, and, and selling them and getting liquidity for fueling additional mortgages. So it was not clear who was supervising that. And, uh, and there were certainly misincentives. So there were bad incentives designed for, those who, for the originators of the mortgages, like in the CACAS example I said before. So I think these have been somehow dealt with. But again, it's a slow uh, moving process that I think will lead to certainly something much better. Thank you.
Thanks a lot. Um, would uh, the authors like to react on uh, the comments raised? And uh, then I would uh, suggest opening up to the, to the audience. Shall I go first? Okay, yeah, then. as you wish. Yeah. Okay. okay, the other way around. Okay. Uh, thanks, thanks, uh, Pierre, for, for your, your question. And uh, thanks, Stefano, for, for your kind and, and uh, comments and, and for highlighting some of the, um, the aspects of, of our uh, report. Um, I, I basically, I think, you know, we are strongly in agreement in many, many aspects. Um, let me just tackle a few of the things. Um, one is how to prevent bubbles, which is a, a very, very difficult uh, question. Um, uh, which I think links with, with, with your question, Pia, of, of has the child guys changed? Um, I think, grad, I mean, one of the things that I've been saying over the years is that unlike, you know, the, the 29 crash and the uh, Great Recession, we didn't have major changes in the um, financial uh, macroeconomic framework in many ways. We had some quite aggressive changes and daring changes in the monetary policy, in, in unorthodox uh, monetary policy. But when it comes, you know, to, uh, to the macroeconomy in general, finance and banking, you know, particularly with the exception, of course, of macroprudential regulation, but which is essentially as well kind of, okay, accepting the framework, but monitoring it more closer, without really changing the pillars, you know, changing the, um, the dogmas. The, um, and I mean, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if, you, if you've read uh, lately uh, um, Laura Turner's, uh, Adair Turner's uh, latest book, uh, Between Death and the Devil. Uh, and I think him and many others, I think they, they make a very strong case that we have a problem by credit being generated by private, banks, and that a lot of our growth in the last 30, 40 years, and Larry Summers has as well pointed to that, is based on credit bubbles. Can modern capitalism function without credit bubbles? And whether we have to go from bubble to bubble. Uh, and, and this is a very deep discussion. Uh, but I mean, you know, some people like even Martin Wolf, not known for being the most kind of dirigist uh, macroeconomist, you know, he says that maybe we have to get rid of fractional banking. Uh, Lord Turner says that perhaps we, we need to have capital requirements in the order of 20, 25%. And I think, you know, his work is very interesting because he has looked at this and it's interesting how over the past 30 years, a lot of the credit, a lot of the debt is linked to real estate. Not only Spain. In the United States, in the United Kingdom, I mean, apart maybe from the um, German kind of sphere, um, and perhaps Italy, you know, because it's, but, you know, we see that a lot of it is real estate based. And, and don't we have perhaps a problem that a lot of this credit is focused on real estate instead of other sectors of the economy? Uh, and so we are fueling this real estate. And a lot of, and I see it, for example, in Spain now, a lot of young people still want to buy a house. And the big investment in their lives is going to be buying a house. Uh, and so perhaps we have to question this. Has the zeitgeist changed? I think slowly it has, but very gradually. And I see more and more voices uh, in policymaking circles 
uh, etc., that they are a bit more kind of um, critical with the current setup, uh, uh, even with you know kind of capital flows, whether you know at some point you might actually put uh, some sand in the wheels, as as they would say. Um, so um, I think, but it's still still difficult, and I think unfortunately. And this will happen as well with the eurozone and 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 its 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 uh, deepening in, in in governance. Perhaps, unfortunately, we need another crisis for the for the zeitgeist to change in a more substantial way. It's 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 sad, but perhaps that's that's my 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 analysis. Yes, uh, a few more comments on that probably. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree and there's, there's this idea that it's precisely because we were good enough in the response to this crisis uh, you know, to avoid a second Great Depression that then the realization was that, you know, you know, that we didn't have to rebuild the, the whole thing from scratch. Uh, and it's a kind of a sad a paradox, if you want. Uh, that's basically this book by Barry Eichengreen, Hall of Mirrors, in which he compares the reaction to the 1920s and, and this crisis and says we did much better here with the monetary policy and with the regulation, but precisely because we did much, much better and we avoided the, the collapse of the system, then we didn't really do the, the big reform, except for some of the regulatory aspects for some of the banks, which are are key and we have this, this tension still today between, you know, uh, on the one hand wanting more credit, on the other one wanting more uh, stronger regulation for, for the banks. But just another two elements uh, going to what Stefano said about the cajas. One thing we, we've seen, I think, in this crisis in the Spanish case, but also more generally, is that these institutions that are difficult to understand from outside in a world of globalization, capital flows more or less free, are much more complicated than, you know, in the old 1970s world, uh, kind of post-Bretton Woods or even Bretton Woods world. So the cajas are, are places that were difficult, difficult to explain for an outsider. I mean, they don't have shareholders, so you, don't, you cannot inject the capital to them. They are social institutions with a governance structure in which you have, you know, the regional authorities plus the trade unions plus the business organizations. This is really... You know, uh, in, in a way, it's sad because some cajas behaved relatively well, a little bit, some uh, small numbers in Spain. But basically, the decision was, you know, you have to wipe them out because they are not really prepared for this world of, you know, very fast information. And this, there's a big discussion to, to, to have about that because, as, as Miguel mentioned, uh, there's been some revisions of, you know, should we maybe contemplate uh, more regulation or even some, some forms of uh, control of capital, not within the Eurozone, of course, or the European Union, but you know, this discussion we have at the macro level. But you know, hyper-financial globalization goes not well with uh, institutions like the Spanish Cajas that are difficult to understand for international investors, right? Um, and then finally, before we get into the, into, you know, the open debate, which I think is, is even more, more interesting, but uh, uh, in the case of Spain also, uh, we have this, uh, this uh, complication that I think I want just to, to highlight it once again, because you have you know, a national government of one political party, a regional government from another political party maybe uh, fighting with each other, uh, and then a, 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 a subnational financial institution that needs uh, that has a solvency issue, 
but we pretend it has a liquidity issue only, and then we cannot really have someone to break the deadlock until the Troika comes, right, basically. Uh, this is kind of problematic, and when we think about the banking union at the European level, this is the thing we're a little bit worried about, right? Uh, uh, if we are going to be reproducing this kind of political deadlock uh, in case of, of a needed resolution at some point, uh, because at some point it, it will happen, probably. So this is another lesson. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your comments, Stefano. And um, I would open the floor now. I would um, like to collect three questions and then uh, come back to the speakers. Please. And please always try to use the microphone, in fact, because otherwise people on the internet will not hear us. Kurt Geiser, team of external speakers of the European Commission. You all spoke about uh, local uh, and regional banks, cajas, etc. And you, Mr. Neri, spoke about the new framework with regions. Is there a link with the uh, referendum you, you plan in Italy in October about the powers of the second chamber the Senate, or is that a different subject? Thank you. Uh, please, Jolt. <clears throat> My, my name is Joel Dorvash. I'm, I work here at Bruegel. And I've had, I've had two questions. <clears throat> um, the first one is that why the assistance was uh, at, needed at all. I mean, you mentioned that there was a political deadlock. Uh, uh, so was this the reason that, that, you know, since the Troika came in, they, you know, they told Spain what to do? But also I can presume that, you know, the government or the parliament that called the Troika in may have had the power also to solve the situation. And also, if I look at the amount of money Spain received, you know, it was about 4 or 5% of GDP, even not all was used. So certainly money-wise was, was not needed at all. So if you can elaborate that a bit, that would be helpful. And my second question is related to the role of, of Spain in the euro system that you mentioned in the, in the second conclusion that one of the novelty of the system that of the situation was that Spain did not have a standalone central bank. And I mean, in the pre-crisis period, I think it's very well understood the reasons, I mean, why it was important. I mean, certainly, if Spain would have had an own currency and own central bank, and probably interest rate would have been higher, the whole bubble would have been, you know, much more muted. But I, I wonder what role the euro system played in the management of the crisis, because you also mentioned that Spain received a lot of liquidity. So was it, so what, what were the, I mean, the plus and minus for, for Spain uh, being a member of the Eurozone in the management of the, of the financial system. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I, will, I would start from here because it makes three questions. So, please. <laughs> Do you want to go first, Fabi? Yes, I was, uh, well, basically for, for Zolt's uh, uh, questions. On, uh, I mean, on the first point, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, 42 billion. It's not that much, uh, but take into account we were at the moment in which, you know, the risk premium for Spain was very high, and there was this perception that, you know, we might uh, lose market access and a full bailout program might be needed. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I think that uh, what, what happened is something that has happened very often in Spain and in many European countries, that you use the European institutions uh, to explain the public that you need to do certain reforms that some people are not going to like, uh, and you use the scapegoat of the European institutions, which in a way 
uh, is something that Spain has done many times since, since the 80s. Uh, and it's not a bad thing in the sense that sometimes it's the way to pass the reforms. The problem maybe uh, is that, you know, in the case of Spain, this also came through an undermining of the Bank of Spain as a supervisory institution, and that also gets into the politics, uh, domestic politics in Spain, with you know the, the new government coming in and the, and the Bank of Spain uh, with a head that was from that had been elected, appointed by the previous government. So that also makes it uh, a bit complicated. But then it's interesting. The perception in Spain is that uh, the Troika or the European institutions had to come to do a good financial reform because we were not capable of doing it domestically because of the political tensions and, and discussions, uh, which actually goes into the direction of what Miguel has, you know, pointed out of the need for more centralization. So this is a very interesting case in which subsidiarity is not really the best idea in the case of banking supervision. On, on the second point, very briefly, we are not even discussing the possibility of not being in the euro for Spain, and we think this is a no, I mean, no discussion, Spain is, is uh, uh, we can have a discussion, uh, what would have, if, if we had known that uh, the, the crisis was going to come in 2008, would, would it have been a good idea for Spain in 99 to wait? But you know, uh, Spain is in the Euro, no discussion. Uh, one thing is important, I think, is that the, the element of the, I mean, the target two system uh, was quite helpful, I think, in kind of acting as a buffer uh, and a liquidity provider for some of the institutions that had liquidity issues but not solvency issues. Because clearly Spain uh, was suffering from, you know, as, as all the countries in the Eurozone during the time of the crisis, as a capital outflow from the periphery to the center, uh, which, you know, didn't, didn't distinguish between the good and bad institutions. It was a general panic. Uh, so in that sense, the, the Eurozone is not, is not the gold standard. Fortunately, uh, and you know the liquidity element uh, helped a lot. However, uh, the, the solvency needs for the institutions that really needed recapitalization could have been done much better from the beginning. And the question is, uh, would it have been done more, more you know, faster uh, if supervision had been already at Frankfurt? Uh, we cannot tell. to add on, on Federico, I think um, if you look at the moment there, uh, and, and you follow it very closely with us, uh, the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, a lot of people thought and bet big money that the euro would break up. And Spain was a key player in all of this, uh, because it was too big to fail and too big to be rescued like with the whole program, so rescuing the sovereign. Uh, but there was a lot of uh, uncertainty and a lot of um, uh, very forceful discourse and narrative coming from key financial centers on whether Spain could be as well insolvent. And the figures went all the way to 120 you needed some, by some of the private actors. And so I think at that moment, because of the change of the provisions needed by the government and the Central Bank of Spain, the credibility had been lost. And, and I think because of that, the premium, you know, the, the, the spread went up, and essentially you needed to have this external actor to tell the guys that were betting against you in New York and London 
that you will need less money? Or how much money would you need? Uh, and and the people from the Bank of Spain, I remember vividly being in London when there was you know, discussions with investors, they kind of agreed that they had just lost credibility. And this brings, us, brings me to the second point, your, your second question, which is counterfactuals. And as you know, counterfactuals are always difficult. And what would have been better would... I think the, the, the macro credit cycle that we experienced in the 1990s and 2000s in the world would have brought a lot of money to Spain anyway. So what Stefano very nicely explained of everyone, and I explained it to my students, everyone wanting to have a house under the sun in Spain, not only the Spaniards, but a lot of Brits, a lot of Germans, a lot of French, you know, that you had all this boom. I think it would have happened anyway, even with Spain not being in the euro. Uh, and then when the crisis comes, is it useful to have the tools and provide liquidity and uh, do monetary financing as the Brits and Americans did? Then I think it comes, as you know as well, everyone knows here, I think, it comes to the credibility of the central bank, right? It happened that the Fed and the Bank of England had a credibility of 200 years of managing, you know, well, the, the Fed is a bit less than 200 years, but 100 years. So if you would be credible enough to do that, you could have done it. You know, it's up to you whether you know Spain could have this credibility and, and have used this tool, or whether Spain would be like, I don't know, Brazil today, where you have actually a drop of 40%, and then you are still in, 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 a, in a big problem because you don't have target tool, because you, you know, so you have a brutal sound stop, etc. So this is just my take on this. And I leave Stefano for the Italian question. The question was on the referendum, man. You know, I would just say that that, as my understanding uh, and my personal view, don't, should not affect the way that the banking sector or the financial system is regulated at all because that's simply, you know, it's all centralized within the Bank of Italy jointly with the single supervisory mechanism. So that wouldn't affect at all any regulation at all. Okay, um, other questions, please? Thank you. My name is Luis Martinez. I represent La Actualidad Económica. Uh, I don't know if there are questions or, or a couple of comments, but one of them relating to what Federico said. Uh, you mentioned implicitly, but I don't, I don't think you said it explicitly, one of the problems with the cajas de ahorros is they don't have a cost of capital. I mean, I was working for the Spanish Banking Association in the early 90s when banks were losing constantly uh, market share to the cajas. Of course, one of the, our main complaints was these guys don't pay, don't, don't reward their capital. We do. So that's, again, one difference. And in general, I enjoyed very much your explanation. I enjoyed the Stefano's uh, explanation of uh, whether people, when people were discussing whether that it was a bubble or it was not a bubble. I was working for the Ministry of Economics at that time. And of course, that was the Ministry of Housing who was saying, no, it's not a bubble because we have the immigrants. And that, that sort of thing you are saying. So indeed, it was very difficult. But I think two points are important. One was that the governors of the Bank of Spain were convinced there was a, a bubble. All the way prior to the socialist government, even Caruana, who was before the socialist, was already uh, warning about the, 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 the bubble. And it's a little bit pathetic that they were, the governors were so strongly warning about this issue and they could not or were not willing to do anything. 
Uh, the other point is that uh, your expose has been mainly on the financial side of it. But if you look at the real part of the economy, I think things are a little bit more clear. We had a, we reached a 10% current account deficit. Uh, th there was something wrong there. There was, there was something wrong in, in, the, in, in the way resources were distributed, were being shifted to the non-tradable sector. And that was something that, for example, the OECD said year after year for, I don't know, three or four times before the crisis. So people who were analyzing the macro uh, uh, thing, I, I think, had it a little bit more clear. Thank you. Please, um, other questions? They can respond to... Go ahead, please. No, this, this also, and this has to do with the predominant thinking. Uh, if you remember, you're totally right, exposed is very clear, wow, 10% current account deficit, this calls for a crisis. But remember that all the discussions about EMU and the irrelevance of the current account deficit between Spain and Germany, just like you don't look at the current account deficit between New York and California, right? So in a way, we, we all bought uh, the you know, predominant narrative that was convenient for everybody about something that was plain new first experiment in history of a monetary policy, monetary union without a fiscal union. Uh, and then uh, we were convinced that the market signals gave us the reason, I mean, put us right, because the risk premium in Greece was 20 basis points or in Spain. Uh, and therefore, you know, why bother? And there's where, uh, and this is the analysis we make, uh, incentives for most of the actors were to just uh, look somewhere else, right? So just to, to say that, you know, ex post is, is easy, but even in the macro, we were telling all sorts of theories uh, about why, you know, uh, integration of financial markets across the Eurozone was a great thing, and, you know, current account imbalances between members of the Eurozone were not something to worry about. I mean, and related to that, uh, and I think this is comes uh, to Slot's question as well, um, uh, I mean, um, Sandbu's latest book on the Eurozone crisis, I think, points to it too, uh, uh, and, and others have done that. We have done that. I mean, all this money that came to Spain, was it used in an efficient way or not? Uh, and who do you blame? We have these discussions a lot. Uh, who do you blame for going all this money to the real estate sector? Do you blame the debtor? Do you blame Spain? Do you blame, uh, blame the Spanish authorities, the Spanish government that uh, introduced incentives to, for people to buy houses? Do you blame the, 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 the private actors that they r rationally or irrationally thought that this would be a great investment? Do you blame uh, the Germans that they save too much and they send all this money to, the, to Spain and therefore the, the creator is, is, uh, is at fault and uh, you have to blame him. And where there is a, a, an irresponsible debtor, there is always an irresponsible creditor. And, and so it's actually not that easy to identify you know, the problems. But I think from a Spanish perspective, uh, I think generally people are aware that uh, the euro was not really the problem. The problem was that there was a lot of money coming to Spain that was not used in the efficient, productive manner that it should have been used. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, the discussion is how can we change our productive model? 
uh, which is very difficult to do. Uh, you cannot do that in, in, in not even in five years. You should do it in, in ten years, etc. But I mean, and this relates to the whole convergence point and whether you know you can have. Uh, um, you know, a, 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 a change in the model of capitalism in the south of Spain, and whether you can have a sustainable monetary union uh, without transfers, uh, fiscal transfers. Uh, but I, again, you know, I think sometimes people blame the euro for uh, this change from uh, tradables to non-tradables, but it could have been as well go going to, to, to tradables. Uh, uh, but that was a decision made by, by actors, public and private. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, I hope in the meantime somebody has some new questions or... Uh, yes, please. So the microphone is coming to me instead of me coming to the microphone. Uh, Jasper Bergen from uh, CREA. Uh, I would be curious to hear what your current assessment is of where the Spanish sector is uh, standing now. Um, at the moment, there are discussions going on on risk reduction and risk sharing in the context of uh, EDIS, so the third pillar of the banking union, um, with, among others, non-performing loans being uh, one of the big concerns. Um, is that something that you also see uh, as a very determinant factor in, in Spain? Um, and maybe also a question, if I may, on uh, the discussion of consolidation. Um, how we are standing now, uh, for instance, with Caixa Bank, uh, also looking at Portugal, um, at a bank like BPI. Do you think that now there are the tools to properly assess what the impact is, is going to be and whether that is something that um, well, the banks and the sector are healthy enough to, to undertake. Uh, well, thank you very much. I, I thought we were going to talk about the Spanish economy currently at some point, so thank you for bringing me in. Uh, I mean, I think also it's a, it's, it's a very important topic. Uh, on, the first, on the first more general assessment, I think that the Spanish economy, as you know, is, is growing at around 3%, 3 uh, slowing down a little bit from last year's growth. And basically, uh, we have all the positive shocks at the same time for the first time since 2008. So it makes sense that we're growing so much with cheap oil, uh, QE, uh, a great year for tourism because all the Mediterranean is in a mess except for the Spanish coast and some other places. Uh, so this summer is going to be extraordinary as well. We had a tax cut just before the election in December, which also, you know, puts money in the pocket of consumers uh, and domestic demand again. Now, as, and most of these elements are supposed to, to continue throughout this year and probably at the beginning of next year, uh, which, you know, makes me relatively optimistic in the sense that, you know, we can go on autopilot even if we don't form a new government until the autumn, which is most likely, uh, probably with this inertia, it's going to be uh, you know, relatively easy co to continue growing more than the European average, reducing unemployment, etc. However, 
all these positive shocks are going to go at some point. I mean, uh, if the world uh, doesn't end, QE will end because there will be a normalization of interest rates at some point. Uh, you know, oil price probably will not go up to 120, but will will go up, and and the other elements, right? Uh, and we have, you know, still an element uh, which is we are in an excessive deficit procedure. Uh, we we still to take more revenue from the economy. We, we have not been able to solve that issue. And more importantly, uh, potential growth in Spain is probably more around 2% than around 3.2, which is what we're growing now. Uh, and therefore, the, the, the job of structural reforms in many issues, but especially education, research and development and other things that would transform the Spanish economy is something we still need to do. Uh, let's see if, if we're capable of doing that. And on the banking sector system, as I said, I think that with the consolidation and the capital injections uh, that were done through the, through the bailout, uh, the system is, is at this point relatively sound and with the economy growing and unemployment going down, the issue of non-performing loans I don't think is particularly worrisome in a country like Spain, maybe it is in other places in the Eurozone. Uh, but the issue here is, uh, you know, what happens with very low interest rates for very long, both for, for banks, but also for insurance companies, et cetera. And I think this is a broader discussion about macro policy, macroeconomic policy and monetary policy, sorry, uh, which we will have to, to continue addressing. But uh, at this point, I think Spain is more prepared to tackle uh, you know, these low interest rates uh, for some time before, a bit better than others, precisely because we did all this reform and restructuring that was a bit costly. Okay, if you want, I, I take the one on Caixa's, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, entry in the Portuguese uh, banking system and um, and g generally kind of the Spanish bank's exposure to the to the Portuguese economy. Uh, I was recently in Portugal, and this is as well. Uh, I mean, you can see a lot of the elements that we saw in the Spanish crisis right there. Uh, um, you know, Portuguese people being not that happy that now Spanish banks are there, uh, that you know, they have to sell their banks to the Spaniards. Uh, so you see this uh, you know, parochial, uh, regional, nationalistic attitude. Um, whether these are um, good investments, um, I think you know, that uh, the Spanish banks will have to decide. Uh, from a supervision point of view, uh, I, I, I noticed that this week, I think, uh, the Spanish uh, supervisors from the Bank of Spain, they, they raised their voice for many reasons, but I think they had a, a very interesting point, which is, well, we are not supervising our banks anymore. The single supervising mechanism is supervising them. But if they go bust, the Spanish state will have to be bailing them out or, or dealing with them. So there's an asymmetry here. There's an asymmetry between a single supervisor at the European level and the resolution of this, and in many cases the recapitalization of it, will have to be done by national capital. Uh, and, and how do you solve this, this tension? And I think we will, we will deal with this tension. And I think you know, the Italian case goes a bit in the same direction. I mean, uh, well, you don't really have this. this uh... So recently I was in Berlin and, and you know, there was a, 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 an investor from, from New York, uh, and it's always good to, to have the Americans there uh, from, uh, you know, from an outsider's perspective. And, and uh, he solved our crisis or our current predicament very quickly. He said, you need to do two things. One 
is to have a, 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 a risk-free sovereign asset. With that, you don't stabilize the system. So you need to have a risk-free sovereign asset, i.e. euro bonds. Um, second, I mean, you created the ESM with all this fanfare. Use it. Recapitalize the Italian banks with the ESM. So in a way, you know, uh, I think it's, this is very, very rational, very, uh, very logical, what is uh, uh, mentioned there. But of course, the politics is not that, that easy. If I may add a, a small point to that, I think it's, it's interesting because in the banking union, we are creating uh, something which is very uh, German in a way, uh, as most of the things we're doing to resolve the crisis, right? We have Bailin. Uh, we have uh, rules for TILAC and we have this idea of uh, everything is going to be automatic and the, the use of taxpayers' money is going to come only uh, in the last resort, which, you know, I think might be a good idea. I would sell better to the citizens that we're not going to be using taxpayers' money to reduce these public opinion polls that show, you know, uh, that the confidence in the EU is going down. But in a way, we have to be prepared for... When some crisis in the future comes, all these automatic mechanisms we know uh, sometimes that uh, want to make it all very technical and take out all the politics are complicated to, to implement, especially if we have, you know, uh, a conflict between two or three of the, of the big countries in the, the Eurozone. And that's something I think requires more, more, more thought. Yes, please. Thank you. Uh, Antonio Garcia del Rio, Banco Santander. I would like to react to, to some, some of the comments made. Um, one of them is the point on, on uh, parochialism. Um, I remember, uh, as you uh, might uh, as well, the case of this big French bank uh, at the beginning of the, uh, I think it was in uh, 2010 or 2012, not, far, not, not so far away ago. Um, when it was basically brought down to the knees uh, because of this trader that make a huge uh, uncontrolled, apparently, um, position taking. And the reaction of the, um, not, not the reaction of the, of the, for instance, of the chairman of the French Banking Association, no, the reaction from the president of the Republic was to say, don't worry, because if this bank has to be sold, it will be bought by another French bank. And it was Sarkozy who said that. So parochialism um, exists, uh, exists uh, in many places and uh, still um, today. And um, um, another comment that I would like to react to was the, what you mentioned, uh, Federico, before on the need to have clarity, uh, something that is difficult to explain. Uh, it basically uh, gets down lost uh, in the market and in the, in the um, confidence uh, of, the, of the investors. Um, that's why this American uh, uh, investor in, in Berlin uh, last week, or I don't know, in Frankfurt last week, uh, had a very clear recipe, clarity. And clarity um, uh, and a straightforward mechanism uh, are very much needed in Europe today. Uh, what we need is uh, clarity and uh, um, uh, transparency, uh, uh, strong governance. And that's why um, I think it's important to pinpoint as well those uh, places, those um, collective institutions that globally could be considered even systemic, where they have so much member of the board seated 
at high levels in politics that are not only um, putting difficulties in, uh, in, uh, in the reshuffling of the local uh, system, but also at the European level. So if concentration is going to be something that we are going to see in Europe, uh, for many reasons, um, probably not at the extent that we have seen in Spain, uh, uh, but some sort of concentration is going to be needed anyhow in the European financial system, uh, we have to clarify as well uh, this governance slash transparency that the market is uh, asking for. And my final, final point, since you are uh, asking for brackets of three questions, I have a third one, <laughs> which is basically um, macroprudential tools and what we are seeing today, in, not only in the European market, but also uh, in other uh, jurisdictions, uh, which is the shadow banking. How to control uh, uh, risks uh, that are not basically known, neither supervised. Thank you. I go first. Okay. You can compliment, yes. Thanks. I mean, I mean uh, yes, on parochialism, I think this is one of our lessons. Uh, I mean, as I, as I pointed out, in Portugal you have it. Um, and, and this goes to the second uh, element. I think, yes, we need to have more pan-European consolidation in the banking industry. And um, when people talk about the uh, capital markets union, a lot of times I point to them, I mean, we don't really have even a banking union, a transnational, you know, banking union with transnationally operating banks that are fully engaged in, in other, you know, jurisprudences or other countries. And, and if, if you don't really have that, it's very difficult uh, to, for people and, and, and you need a range of harmonization of elements, right? I mean, from bankruptcy laws to securities laws to, you know, so it's, it's, it's a mega project. And uh, I, I was just recently doing research on comparing, and I think some work here in, the Bruegel, in Bruegel has been done on, on this as well, comparing the evolution of the American single market that we um, sometimes in Europe think that is very unitarian, homogeneous, and it's already there and take for granted, but it took more than a century to evolve. I mean, the 19th century of the United States single market, it's a history of fragmentation, of parochialism, of tensions, of political economy, of, you know, so to create this, it's, 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 it's a very long, long process. And, you know, a lesson as well from the United States is that it is difficult to, to create this without some sort of social and political harmonization at the same time. I mean, can we create as well a capital markets union when people feel still French, Spanish, Polish, and therefore are more likely to invest in the capital market of Poland than in, 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 in the IBEX, IBEX 35 of Spain, right? So if you don't have this going along, I just don't see this other elements that, you know, uh, people talk a lot about them in Brussels uh, functioning. So, so I think that would be my reaction to that. And yes, I think in Europe, um, although we think sometimes that we are very good and great and are very Eurocentric, uh, if we compare it, uh, us with, with Americans, we lack clarity, transparency, meritocracy uh, in a lot. I mean, as a researcher, for example, when it comes to data, uh, I have much more access to data in the United States than I have in Europe, for sure. Um, finally, on the Shando banking system, our oh, major, major issue, 
I think that's a, a major and, 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 you know, I mean, if you look at, at the volumes in the shadow banking system, they are huge, huge. Uh, people as well talk a lot, a lot about the shadow banking system in China. That's minuscule compared to the, to the shadow banking systems in the United States and the, in Europe. When I talk to the regulators, they tell me that the solution is macroprudential regulation and proper stress testing. I don't know whether this is enough. Uh, my view is that it is not enough. But uh, again, I think we come to this philosophical question, how much room do you leave for the market and how much state or you know, state intervention, state regulation do you want? And I think this is this zeitgeist question, this philosophical question, this you know, economic theory question of you know, where do we stand and where do we want to go? Uh, and, and I think you know, it's difficult to solve. Stefano, do you want? Um, in fact, I, I'm wondering if I can go back um, just uh, add one question on my own uh, to the subsidiary that you were talking, the subsidiary principle that you were talking about, and that in in banking union um, it's maybe not the best idea. Do you so? Do you think that the the banking union that we have now will be able to actually also act on these uh, linkages that you often have between regional actors and and political actors, as you saw in Spain, as you uh, as we all know about in in Germany and Austria and so on. <laughs> we've, we've, we've discussed, I mean, we've discussed a lot uh, this. Uh, I mean, I think that the, the system is, is well done and we've done our best in the European Banking Union, taking into account the, the speed at which we had to move. The key thing here is, do you regard the current system as mainly intergovernmental or as mainly, you know, federal or with a, you know, a, a capacity to have strong decision making at the center? And this is the key because, if, if you think this is more, and, and there's discussion, you know, in the mechanisms for resolution, it's not clear because you have an, a hybrid, of course, like everything in the European Union. But if the intergovernmental part is more important, then you're going to have more trouble of this kind if you need to resolve a specific ban in a specific important country and you need to apply the bail-in rules according to the rules, but then the government would prefer to bail out because it has the domestic capacity to do it. Uh, and if you cannot enforce equal treatment in different countries just because they are creditors or debtors, north or south, whatever you want, then we have a problem. If you look at the evolution of the governance of the Eurozone in, throughout the crisis, unfortunately, I think we've seen a rise of intergovernmentalism and a decline on uh, you know, the European method. We have a number of new institutions here that are not even European institutions. I mean, they, they are intergovernmental treaties like the ESM exactly uh, and others. Uh, and therefore, you know, I think that we have not resolved this issue yet. This has to do, of course, with uh, fiscal union and, and, and moving towards a more federal Europe, which I think most people would agree is the way to go, but it has political problems, right? Uh, so, you know, I cannot give really an answer, but it's about, you know, uh, is the mechanism for resolution really, uh, at the end of the day, an intergovernmental one or a federal one? Right? That, that would be the, the key thing, and I'm not sure. Okay, thanks a lot. I think we have time for one last question, and um, somebody here. Otherwise, I would, uh, I don't know if you want to have some concluding remarks. No? 
Thank well, you very much for the invitation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Final question. One, final, one final question. question. Okay. <laughs> Please go ahead. Thanks. I would always uh, rather hear other people's questions. Um, that's why I wait. So anyway, uh, from MLEX, John Riga. Back on the point about the, uh, the financial rules um, that we have since the crisis, the lessons learned about the countercyclical buffers and about the um, uh, dynamic provisioning. In fact, I think it was uh, Caruana himself who has said since leaving the uh, Bank of Spain to go to, to Basel that he doesn't see the countercyclical buffers working very well because when, t when things are booming, capital is really cheap and it's very easy for the bank to build them up. But when things are on the way down, there's too much market pressure on the bank to ever really use it as a buffer. It really has to become a minimum. At least that was uh, something he, he said in a speech um, uh, a few years back. Uh, so I'm just wondering, one, if the Spanish lessons uh, you know, really do bear that out. And two, on the dynamic provisioning side, do you have a sense of, um, you made a very good point about the, the peer pressure, but uh, is there, do you, do you have a sense of why the level of provisioning they had in place at the time wasn't enough? Thanks. I mean, people thought that was enough. Uh, and that, that's the thing. I mean, you, you are in this bubble, which is a party, and everyone is dancing. And, uh, you know, you tell people, uh, you look, at 12 o'clock, we have to finish. And everyone agrees. But then people start drinking, and then it's 12 o'clock, and they want to keep drinking. Uh, and so you, you, you thought that you had set up a clear rules that at 12 o'clock you would finish. Uh, and if you are in the north of, the, of, of Europe, it's at 10 o'clock. Um, and then people don't do it. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, think, I think that's why I started with Kindleberger. Um, do we think that markets are rational? Or do we think that they are mostly irrational and there's a lot of herding and a lot of, you know, so that's where your position is. If, if, if you think that they are rational, then you know, you can think that you can take measures that are rational as well to stop this and that can be effective when it comes to the moment. But if you have a Minsky moment, and then, as you said, the crisis strikes, and then you have a freezing of the system, and then you have a moment where the market paralyzes and where there's a, a huge drop in, in price levels, and, you know, the market, you know, the, the mark to market doesn't work anymore, and then suddenly you realize that, yes, your provisions, yes, your assets, yes, all of the, what you thought was X, it's X minus 50. Uh, then, then you're in trouble. And, and, and I think that's, that's the debate that we should have. Uh, are, are markets um, rational and therefore you can deal with them in a rational way or are they inherently irrational and therefore you need to deal with this irrationality in many different ways. Uh, and, and that's why you know, it's, 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 it's very important to have um, preventive measures as much as possible and have to force to actually deal with that. So go against the zeitgeist, easier said than done. And when the crisis then comes, have a toolkit that is very broad and that allows you to all sorts of capabilities and measures and provisions uh, to deal with, with this irrationality. And uh, I mean, this is one of the lessons that we draw from history 
I mean, as you know, the Americans for a long while, they thought that they could live with a banking system without the central bank, without a lender of last resort. And they, they, they realized, well, at some point, you need to have a lender of last resort to restore the market. And, and so I think, you know, we will learn the same thing with, uh, with the fiscal union. I mean, uh, at some point, when there's a lot of instability, uh, then you might have to have uh, this sovereign actor that stabilizes the system and, and deal, deals with this irrationality uh, by stabilizing, you know, the framework. Uh, and, I mean, this is, again, uh, a lesson from history. Because, as <laughs> I said, this time was no different. So read Reinhardt and Rogoff and read Kindleberger, and, and, uh, and there you can draw your lessons. Just a quick note on why the provisions were not larger. In, in fact, there was some pressure around 2003, 2004 to reduce the provisions because of this perception that this was going great, why not expand even more the credit, right? At the end of the day, probably even with a bit more provisions, the size of the crisis was too large, uh, you know, uh, to have uh, enough buffers, right? But I, I guess this, this idea of, you know, the narrative is, is quite important, um, uh, you know. Okay, great, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for the speakers, for their interesting words. Thank you for the comments, Stefano. And I hope uh, you enjoyed it as much as I did, and uh, see you at the next Brugler event. Thank you.